0: We really want to reinforce that it's, there's no one single magic bullet. It's a combination of therapies that act together synergistically to you know control the cancer, improve the patient's outcome, and hopefully extend their life.
1: Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrated perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Is there a war on repurposed medications? That's the question that we're going to answer, and much, much more, because we're going to go through with Dr. Paul Merrick in his new book called Cancer Care. For those of you watching, you can see it right here in the video. But for those of you just listening, I encourage you to go to Amazon and check out his book, Cancer Care is the Title by Paul E. Merrick, MD. So Dr. Paul Merrick, as we've been reviewing, he's a pioneer in the treatment of sepsis, the innovation of vitamin C and sepsis. He's co-founder of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And now he's brought that same innovation and is bringing that same innovation and discovery into the arena of integrative oncology. Dr. Paul Merrick, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Nathan. And we've, we've been discussing with Dr. Paul Merrick in the first segment, we talked about vitamin C and sepsis. So I encourage you to check that podcast out. We then talked about his pioneering work, innovative work in the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. We talked about that in the second podcast, but now we're going to dive into this book of integrative oncology. And I imagine there's a story there as there's been a story to your journey up to this point, how and why did you say, I need to write a book about integrative (laughs) oncology. Now you are a critical care specialist, but your expertise was in sepsis. That's where a lot of your work was. How did you get into this idea?
0: Yeah, so that's a good question. And it wasn't really a planned journey like many journeys. You Takes you on un, uncharted twists. So, you know, I have spent most of my career collating data, analyzing data, synthesizing data, and putting it together. So although I don't act, although I'm not an active oncologist, I, I, I really have the experience over 30 years of collating uh, information and obviously we have an interest in repurposed drugs uh, you know across the spectrum so it was really by accident that I I got interested in this topic I was uh, listening to Jane McClellan's interview Uh, she, 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 she wrote a book on starving cancer she was a patient with stage four cervical cancer in whom the oncologist told her there was no hope, and she she, she was unwilling to accept that um, that course. So she self-treated herself twenty years ago with repurposed drugs, and so it got me thinking because you know we have an interest in repurposed drugs, um, and so I started looking at the literature, and I was amazed. I was absolutely amazed at what I found because. There is overwhelming data. Now, when I mean overwhelming data, there's overwhelming data on the role of repurposed drugs to treat cancer. Um, So this is not data which is hidden in some obscure corner of the medical literature. This is in, you know, Medline indexed peer-reviewed medical journals. And so the book you refer to has over a thousand references to peer-reviewed journals. So this literature is out there. It's just hidden and probably is hidden by design because um, the the medical establishment does not want you to know that repurposed drugs uh, and metabolic therapy can be highly effective as an adjunct in controlling cancer. And so that's how I became interested. And the more I read about this topic, the more fascinating it became and the more obsessed I became in trying to understand the topic. Uh, so that's how it happened. So although I'm not an oncologist, what I do do and what I've been doing for 30 years is analyzing data, synthesizing data, collating data, and putting it together. And so I have no vested interest. Unlike most many oncologists who have a particular vested interest in one particular therapy or another, I have no conflict of interest. So I can I can talk the pure science, I can review the science, because there is an old adage, if you're a hammer, the world looks like a nail. And so <laughs> if you're an oncologist in this country, and I should say in this country, because many, most oncologists in this country are not integrative oncologists, you're gonna give chemotherapy and chemotherapy alone, even if it's not appropriate for your patient. And you're not gonna discuss with the patient the myriad of lifestyle changes and dietary changes, and the use of repurposed drugs, which can revolutionize the patient's uh, course. And so the focus really is on quality of life. What, What can we do to improve the quality of the patient's life? And I think that's the gist of integrative oncology, which in a way combines the best of both worlds. It combines traditional orthodox medicine, which is chemotherapy or radiotherapy or surgery. The chemotherapy, though, should be given in much smaller doses, which is called metronomic dosing, because I think it's much more effective. And that when you combine this with complementary medicine. It's really important that it's complementary because it complements the orthodox medicine and it's based on science. Again, this is based on, you know, as I said, there are over a thousand peer-reviewed papers that I refer to, but there are probably thousands more that I didn't refer to. So it must be based on science. So you're marrying the best of two worlds with the ultimate goal of improving the quality of the patient's life. The goal of chemotherapy should not be to make the patient so incapacitated, so immune compromised, so debilitated that it interferes with their quality of life. So I think the ultimate purpose, you know, if we can cure a patient, that's fine. We're not making any outrageous claims. The, what we're trying to do is personalize medicine based on the patient's wishes, wants, desires and outcomes to provide the best quality of life for that patient.
1: You know, it's really interesting in, in your book, and I, again, encourage you to, um, those of you who are watching Cancer Care, but those of you who are uh, just listening, go to Amazon and check out Cancer Care, because you also touch on natural therapies, but the evidence base. So people would go, well, you're talking about the science, the evidence-based data, but a lot, of, a lot of what you talk about in there too is what might be deemed natural, like vitamin D. I mean most conventional oncologists most conventional doctors in general would look at vitamin D as just a natural supplement a therapy devoid of science or they don't know <clears throat> about science so you actually talk about natural therapies because the evidence supports their use
0: yeah so I think you know it's these are arbitrary distinctions between because, in a way, many drugs are derived from nature um, and so the distinction between what's natural and what's manufactured in, in a laboratory is, is somewhat arbitrary. And so vitamin D actually is a potent, it's a vitamin but it's also a hormone and is probably one of the most effective anti-cancer agents there is. The data is overwhelming, it's not even, it's not even up for a debate. In terms of using vitamin d to both prevent cancer and treat cancer and it's based on numerous mechanistic pathways and it's based on really good outcomes data including randomized controlled trials so basically the highest level of evidence supports the use of vitamin d it's cheap it's safe it's readily available and should really be given to every single patient with cancer And, you know, I would consider it medical malpractice for an oncologist not to suggest vitamin D to a patient, just because the data is so overwhelming, it's so safe, it's so cheap, it's so effective. And yet, obviously, that's not what the standard is. And that's why I think what one wants to do is combine the best of traditional oncology, as well as, you know, complementary techniques, which would include vitamin D, which would include exercise and stress reduction and sunshine and good sleep and dietary changes. I mean, it's a complete approach, lifestyle approach, dietary approach, repurpose drugs to completely change the way you manage patients with the ultimate goal of improving the quality of their life. It's a life that they feel is worth living. And if it prolongs their life, that's that's a bonus. If it so-called cures them, that's an additional bonus. But the real goal is to improve the quality of the patient's life.
1: What I really like about your work with this book, Paul, is how you structured and laid it out. You You presented that, you know, here's the problem. Here's how we tackle the problem based on evidence. You pull in some of the you know, work by Thomas Siffre, you know, Otto Warburg and the Warburg theory. So you kind of lay the foundation for the mechanisms and processes that are driving the cancer. And beyond that, you then said, here's the evidence, not just of what this therapy applies, whether that be vitamin D, you touch on vitamin C, you touch on repurposed medications, which we'll touch on several in a second. But, you then talked about the specific mechanisms. So not just the broad kind of hallmarks of cancer that were first described in 2000, updated 2011, many have updated uh, other mechanisms, but you dive in to the specific cell signaling. So it's like going back to that paper that you just sent me yesterday, that vitamin D and P53, where vitamin D in those where P53 is expressed because they were using a cohort, they were carving out from the original study where they found no benefit, but then they found, well, if there's a subset of patients, and p53, by the way, it's a, it's a tumor suppressor gene, it's a mutation where it gets turned off in cancer, and estimates are somewhere between 50 and 70% of cancer patients or cancer types have this expression. So when they found that, they found that the vitamin D had a much bigger impact but though those cancer types you have to conclude that didn't have that p53 vitamin D wasn't going to have an impact so the point here is that vitamin D is being shown to actually be not just an evidence-based therapy but it was showing to be a very specific pinpoint target
0: yeah so what i did in 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 the monograph is to look at the basic science to see if we could see what the mechanistic pathways were by which the nutraceutical or natural compound or repurposed drug worked. And then there are a whole host of biochemical pathways through which they could work, Um, you know, including, you know, promoting cell death, which is apoptosis, you know, causing cell cycle arrest. So the cells stop immortalizing and, and dying you know, effects on the tumor microenvironment, because the tumor grows in this environment which self-sustains it. Looking at angiogenesis, which is new blood formation. So there are multiple pathways through which these drugs work, and it just so happens, unlike conventional chemotherapy, which really acts on rapidly dividing cells to kill them, and that's their singular mode of action. Almost all In fact, all the repurposed drugs have multiple modes of action interfering through multiple different pathways, including the cancer stem cell. So, you know, we haven't really spoken about the cancer stem cell, which is just so important. Oncologists don't want to talk about the cancer stem cell because they don't have a real good answer for treating the cancer stem cell, so they act as if it doesn't exist. But the cancer stem cell is, as the name implies, it's the stem cell which gives rise to the cancer. Unfortunately, chemo and radiation therapy actually promotes the growth of the stem cell rather than killing the stem cell. So what chemotherapy does, it's like a tree. It's pruning the tree, but you're leaving the roots untouched. And it's those roots which then continue to grow and propagate. And so almost all of the repurposed drugs, in some fashion, kill or destroy or inhibit the stem cell. So it is truly astonishing that while standard chemotherapy acts really through one defined pathway, which is usually preventing replication of rapidly dividing cells, almost all of the repurposed drugs or nutraceuticals or botanicals act via different multiple pathways, including inhibiting the stem cell.
1: We have a quote here from your book, um, quote, remarkably, unlike conventional chemotherapeutic drugs that mostly act via single cellular biological pathway, almost all the repurposed drugs nutraceuticals use as adjunctive treatments for cancer have multiple modes of action. And that's a quote from your book. So basically what you said with full dose chemo, what you're doing is you're coming in there, like you said, it's the hammer and it sees everything with a nail. It is just one thing and one thing only. Now it definitely destroys that nail. It hammers it in, but it hammers everything else in the process. What I say say to patients is going to war on cancer is going to war on the body. In essence, cancer is a abnormal form of the body. So when you go to war on it, you are de facto going on to war on the body. And you see that in the impact on the immune system. You're talking about how it, it promotes and aggravates the cancer stem cells. It destroys the immune system. That part and parcel is what's going on there. But what you're touching on here is a much broader scheme, which you touch on in your book is that these impacts from these repurposed therapeutics, they are a ripple through the process of cancer. So it's not just one thing. So talking about, you know, one drug metformin, which is a a diabetic medication, it ripples through the hallmarks of cancer, the mechanisms of cancer, the cell signaling of cancer, the immune. It's even an um, uh, immunotherapy within the tumor microenvironment. But what you touched on, it also has an impact on the cancer stem cells. So when patients are taking these repurposed therapies that you document here, and there's many more to come, I'm sure, as you said, this is a living and breathing document. These therapies are gonna ripple through every aspect of what's driving the cancer for the people that choose to use these. Now, you touched on why you don't know that a lot of integrative oncologists use these repurposed therapies. One, I think it may be just frank ignorance, and that's willful or not.
0: So you said integrative, you meant conventional oncologists. Yes,
1: conventional, sorry, conventional oncologists, why they don't use this, thank you for correcting me. Um, They should be all integrative. Yeah. So
0: it's actually something that I discovered, which I I was not an expert on oncology. Now I've been reading a lot of uh, stuff on oncology and educating myself. So it seems like in Europe, particularly in certain European countries in the Middle East, all oncologists are integrative oncologists. That's what they practice. That's the standard of care. And in fact, if you are hospitalized in a in an oncology ward in a European country you will receive standard therapy as well as integrative care which can include you know tai chi it can include sunshine therapy it can include mistletoe you know the whole spectrum of integrative oncology which is basically the best of two worlds combined whereas unfortunately in the U.S. it seems to be very fractionated you have traditional oncologists who give chemo that's all they do Right. And you can't even speak to them about diet because, according to them, diet has absolutely no role. Exercise has no role. Stress reduction has no role. It's just giving chemotherapy. Whereas there are, fortunately, a group of integrative oncologists who, you know, have seen the light. You know, yeah, Dr. Goodyear, for example, who are prepared to, take, you know, take the best of both worlds, which makes so so much sense. You know, there's all this information. There are multiple treatment strategies. Why don't you choose those that are effective and safe? But at the same time, it's really important to guard against what I would call alternative practices. So these are practices that are devoid of any scientific basis. And unfortunately, many patients with cancer are desperate. They're gonna be seeking miracle cures. And so they can be exploited for financial gain by scrupulous practitioners who are using techniques that really are not based in science. So it's very important to distinguish what we would call you know, alternative from complementary or supplementary medicine.
1: Because we were talking this morning about, you talked about three kind of categories, conventional, oncology, complementary, and then alternative. And you were talking about the three kind of categories there and they are quite different.
0: Yeah, so sometimes people, which is really, I think, done by design, combine complementary and alternative medicine together, they call it CAM. And I think that's that's an enormous error, and maybe it's by design to dilute out the benefits of complementary medicine, because alternative medicine and complementary medicine or supplementary are completely different. The one is science-based, the other one is religion-based. It's based on you know people's religious beliefs or other forms of voodoo, which has have little place in science.
1: Right. Yeah. So, and that's why I love the the title cancer care because it's not implying a category. It's just saying cancer care, and then you say here's the science that you can provide in your cancer yeah. care, and I love that because everybody wants to compartmentalize everything. You know. Well, Well, what's your category?
0: Yeah, and so we were gonna call it the cancer cure, but then we realized, you know what, we're not providing a cure, we're providing a direction, we're providing a path that patients and hopefully healthcare providers can, can embark on to realize there are multiple different paths you can follow to improve a patient's health.
1: Yeah, because, and I think you've seen this, one of the things is when we treat patients, we have a huge impact on them, and their families. But when you empower other physicians, which is what you're doing through this book, you're you're teaching and empowering patients, but you're also going to be teaching and empowering doctors. And when you do this, now your work is becoming exponential, Paul. Now it's gonna become, instead of treating nine patients, seeing nine patients get better instead of the 18 of the beds going back to the the COVID days, now it's gonna be, exponentiating that because doctors are going to be jumping in board. So now instead of one doctor seeing nine patients improve, you're going to have 10 doctors seeing nine patients improve. So nine becomes 90, now 100. So it's going to become exponential. And that's why I think that this book is so important, because you're bringing that science, that innovation to and I think you're going to provide clarity in the integrative oncology wor- world of which as we were talking about over breakfast this morning uh, has a little bit of some uh, shotgun approach if you will <laughs> yeah. out there and uh, we don't want to approach on that too much but um, yeah
0: so that's why i think you know we, you know we talk a lot about science but you know science is 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 a rig- rigorous specialty and it's based on repeated observations and reproducibility and it's based on having a solid foundation and having a scientific or mechanistic premise so it's the whole totality of the scientific evidence and so I looked at the mechanistic pathways but then that in itself is not sufficient because you know a nutraceutical or a pharmaceutical or botanical may work in a petri dish or in a in a test tube or in an animal model but what does it do in a patient because that's the real important thing so then what i did is i looked at the clinical evidence and graded the degree of clinical evidence because that becomes important yes. so you know there may be one or two case reports but case reports are so much susceptible to observational bias right. that you know it is it is a piece of evidence but it's a small piece of evidence so what's really more important is case series or longitudinal case studies which provide you with much more information. And then of course the gold standard which is not a requisite is the randomized controlled trial. So and surprisingly enough there are randomized controlled trials with a fair number of these repurposed drugs and nutraceuticals that have proven their benefit. So I'm not saying that randomized trials are the answer in fact I, I, I think they don't provide the answer, because what you really need is a combination of multiple interventions, and that's very difficult to do in a randomized trial, right. to do multiple simultaneous interventions. So that's where longitudinal observational studies are really so important, and I think that's, that should be the gold standard. The other problem with a randomized trial is, I think it's unethical to give a patient placebo. You have a patient who has a serious disease you have a potential medication or therapy that is potentially beneficial how is it ethically sound to give a patient a placebo so that you actually the goal is for the patient in the placebo arm to have a higher risk of dying which seems completely anti Hippocratic and anti-medical so so I think randomized controlled trials really have a very limited role in in the use of the, the, these agents.
1: And you touched on that with uh, your nurses in the use of vitamin C for sepsis and the construct of that study, because they felt it was unethical to give them the placebo because of the profound impacts they saw yeah. in those few patients.
0: Yeah, I think you would need to ask yourself, is this was your mother, your father, or your brother, or your child, what would you, what would you want them to get? Would you would you you know uh, woefully enroll them in a randomised trial where they have a fifty percent chance of getting placebo? That 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 does not seem to be morally and ethically sound uh, a sound approach. So that's why it has to be studied scientifically. But I think you know observational longitudinal studies are, are the answer, and there's really good data showing that well-designed prospective observational studies provide as good data as randomized controlled trials.
1: So let me, let me present you two options and you tell me what you think cancer is. Is cancer a genetic mutation disease or is it a metabolic disease?
0: So that's really an interesting question. So the current, much like what we think we know is actually what we don't know. So the current per- pervading theory is that cancer metabol- is, is a metabolic is a is a genetic disease is a mutation um, is, is a chromosomal disease and so that's the pervading narrative but there are many many holes in that theory which just do not hold water so there's no question that genetics does play a role so we're not saying that genetics is completely has no role but it seems that cancer is not primarily a genetic disease. It's primarily a metabolic disease. It's a, it's a cellular dysfunction of cellular energy. And so, you know, maybe a good example of this is the BRCA gene. So we know that, you know, women with the BRCA mutation, BRCA1 or 2, currently have about a 70% chance of getting breast cancer, but it's only 70%. If, if it was a purely genetic disease, 100% would get it. But what's most interesting in the last 40 years, the risk of a woman with BRCA1 getting breast cancer has doubled. So if it was purely a genetic disease, that, that would, would just doesn't hold water. So obviously there are multiple other fa- factors, environmental factors, lifestyle factors, which determine the risk of disease. And you know, BRCA is a specific example. So it's been estimated that maybe 5% of cancers are primarily due to genetic mutations, primarily. The rest, it's very difficult to implicate mutations or chromosomal abnormalities. And probably the most authoritative person to voice an opinion on this is James Watson. And. People may not ball know ball who James Watson DNA is. Deluxe. You know, he, he co-invented or co-discovered the structure of DNA. And in a New York uh, New York uh, uh, op-ed, he wrote that it, it's, it's the wrong approach to assume that cancer is due to genetic mutations and we need to look at cellular metabolism. So the father of genetics and the father of chromosomes himself Questions the mutation theory of cancer?
1: You know, I actually wrote one of one of the thesis papers in my undergraduate was on their book their discover, discovery of the triple helix. So that brings back some memories there, reading all that. Yeah, but you know this is interesting because I clearly knew where you stood on it and we're in alignment there because in your book, you clearly say that the genomic instability and, ran- and random somatic mutations seen in most cancers arise largely as downstream epiphenomenon of react- reactive-, reactive oxygen in species production and oxidative phosphorylation dysfunction. So basically, you're tying in that, look, what we're seeing in so much of these mutations in cancer is born out of metabolic disease, Yes, which ties to Thomas Sivfried, and his work, and so you're taking that concept, which really began with Otto Warburg. Honestly, it began before then, because the process of medicine, the way you look at how so much of this concept, I think of tit for tat, one for one, looking for the magic bullet was Paul Urich. He brought us the chemist chemist warfare. He was the the chemist that brought the treatment of syphilis with one drug, so he said, okay, we have a disease, it's caused by one thing, we're gonna treat it with one thing. That has been the the predominant philosophy, I think, that has dominated in medicine for about the last hundred years. But what you're now starting to see is the idea that okay, the magic bullet theory it doesn't hold, and that's what you're tying into the mutation and the metabolic disease. But then you're tying that in with the treatment as well. That this is a ripple process. It's multifactorial. There definitely is genetic predisposition. There's no there's. I'm not predestined to be five foot two, 120 pounds. It's very clear. I'm six foot one, you know, 225 pounds. So we all have, you know, pre predetermined um, genetic predisposition, but the environment influences that. So if I eat cabbage and kale, I'm going to be thinner as a manifestation of that genetic expression. If I eat Twinkies and ding dongs, quite a different manifestation. So we're not a genetic disease, we're really a metabolic disease that is cancer and out of that mutations come. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and and there
0: is, you know, apart from what you've just mentioned, there is additional very strong data to support the concept that it's not primarily a genetic disease. Firstly you can look at twin studies yeah. and twin studies clearly show very little concordance between the development of cancer. What's also fascinating is the migration of populations. So when you have, for example, Chinese or Japanese people migrating from Japan and China to the US, their risk of breast cancer goes up exponentially. And it's the same genes, it's the same genetic makeup. So clearly there are, and the same happens with prostate cancer. So clearly there are environmental factors that play an important role. So the genes provide the groundwork, but it's really the environment which determines the ultimate course that that that
1: follows. So when we focus on the environment, obviously we tend to focus on the environment outside, but we tend to focus on the environment that we're experiencing right here, right now. But I don't think, Paul, that that characterized really the exponential threat that we're seeing. Because, you know, I know you're familiar with, you know, uh, transgenerational inheritance of pathology. It's the the concept that what our parents are exposed to and the change of genetic expression actually can be inherited. Now there's, there's debate and, you know, and discussion about how much and how long that process goes. But there are animal studies that show that chemotherapy given to one generation can actually have effects and peak about the fifth, the sixth generation. So do you think it amounts to not just our environment, but that which we were exposed when we were growing in our mother, that which our mother and father were exposed to, that which our parents, grandparents, and it's this exponential pile on that is really what is accelerating and what we're seeing today.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very complicated issue i think it's multi-generational and when we talk about environmental factors i think it's environmental toxins yeah you know such as pollution and cigarette smoking and glycof- gly- yeah, Glyphosate. Gly- gly- glyphosate <laughs> what a word uh, and ddt and all of these toxins but it's also lifestyle changes it's the diet yeah i think dietary changes lifestyle changes are just so important i mean it seems absurd to suggest that sleep patterns may affect your risk of cancer, but there's really good data on sleep deprivation and cancer. There's also good data on your circadian clock disalignment and getting cancer. So for example, it's well known that night shift workers, particularly women, have a much higher risk of breast cancer Um, just because of the dysynchronization of your circadian rhythm. There's good data that stress um, increases your risk of cancer. There's good data that absence of sunshine, you know, decreases your risk of cancer. There's good data that lack of exercise increases your risk of cancer. So these are multiple. When we talk about environmental factors, these are you know the exogenous environment as well as the particular patient's lifestyle, the endogenous um, factors that that all interact and coalesce to determine your risk of cancer. And of course, there is a genetic background, but it seems to be less important than these other environmental factors.
1: But these lifestyle factors, you touch on them. I mean, you touch on nutrition quite in detail in, in the book talking about fasting, talking about ketogenic diet, and you're tying that into the metabolic disease concept. Um, these principles of lifestyle medicine, exercise, sleep, what you've talked about, these are something every patient with cancer can do in adjunct to any, any cancer treatments they are undergoing or as a prevention strategy. Because if you're preventing cancer, through a healthy lifestyle, most likely you're preventing other chronic diseases of aging. And from a critical care specialist background, how, is that true?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think they, they link to there's, there's If you look at insulin resistance, you know, insulin resistance is associated with diabetes, it's associated with cardiovascular disease, it's associated with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. It's a very important cause of cancer so there there's a there's a fundamental um, link between lifestyle change uh, health improvement and multiple chronic diseases so these are all chronic diseases that are all linked together
1: yeah and the, just this one here we're talking about is just one that has the name cancer yes so you know so you 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 basically tied you talked about you know, cancer is not a genetic disease at its foundation, but it's a metabolic disease and adaptation really born out of an inhospitable environment, both outside and inside. And one that is really, it's really generational. It's one that's just, um, it's just piling on. You jumped into the lifestyle aspect of it. And I think that's one that for me, it's so sad, Paul, that in the world of oncology, it's something so simple but it can be something so impactful. Nutrition, if, if they just took sleep, nutrition and exercise, what kind of dramatic results might we get beyond what, what we have now? Not to have accolades because of that impact, but to save lives. But it's not embraced by the conventional world. I don't understand
0: it. Yeah, so I think the medical community is looking for a magic drug, a magic bullet that will clear, will you know kill cancer, whereas it's actually the the answer is there with these simple lifestyle interventions that are cheap, and economical, and safe and easy to do. You know they're looking for the Gleevec. You know Gleevec was was a once-off wonder and it's not going to happen every day yeah. but we, we we have these lifestyle interventions which are so profoundly impactful and you know not only will they you know in terms of prevention prevent cancer but as we said it will reduce the risk of cardiac disease uh, dementia diabetes uh, aging so it has multiple beneficial effects just because you know we live such a dysfunctional our lifestyle is so dysfunctional and our diet is obviously you know completely non-nutritious we don't eat food we eat processed food which has very little
1: to do with real food you say what is what is food that's nutritious in your book you say it's just real food it's not a box a bag a can it's real food, food that grows out of the ground, food that's green, that, you know, that walks the earth, it's real food. Real food is obvious, it's real food. <laughs> yeah, so
0: if, so if people don't know the difference, it's, pr- it's pretty simple. If it looks like food, it's food. <laughs> if, it, if it comes out of a box, has a label on it or a package insert, or uh, uh, you know, then it's most likely not food; it's processed food. So it's very simple. If it looks like if it looks like some kind of food, it's likely food. Oxum's razor, right? Yes.
1: <laughs> so then, but then you really started the turn in the book, focusing on repurposed medications and the idea of repurposed medications in the treatment of cancer. It's not really that that old, is it? I mean, it's relatively new. Begin begin what nineteen nineties.
0: Yeah, so I think that the whole world of repurposed drugs has changed. Um, you know, we've been using, re- so once you really define what a repurposed drug is? So a repurposed drug is an FDA approved drug that's being used for an indication that's not in the specific labeling of the drug. So many drugs we use, 40 to 60 percent of drugs prescribed by physicians are used off label. Um, it's just a technical term because the pharmaceutical company can really only advertise for the labeled indication but many drugs that are already standard of care are used off-label so the use of off-label drugs for many indications has been decades long you know particularly for cardiovascular disease but it's more recent that the use of repurposed drugs for cancer has emerged as a viable option and there's increasing research that's being done in this area. And I think it's really exciting because most of these drugs have a long history and that means we know its safety record, we know its side effect profile. These drugs are usually cheap, readily available. So there are many, many advantages for using repurposed drugs. And so now there's there's an explosion, really, of scientific studies looking at the role of repurposed drugs for the treatment of cancer.
1: But one of those issues that I think I think you touched on a very important point point there, Paul, is that um, definitely we have long term evidence of the safety profile, which with medications. That's one of the biggest issues. You know, are these drugs safe and then what is their impact? But the fact that they're cheap, I mean, just take mabendazole, for example, Mabendazole in the U.S is not something, I think if you prescribe a 30-day supply of Mabendazole, as the literature describes how you should repurpose it to treat cancer, it's going to cost you about 16, dollars $17,000 versus you can get it outside of that in other countries, India, and it's like 40 bucks. So what we're dealing with here now is not just that it's a cheap drug, but I think there's a manufacturer issue. They're just not making it. And so they're not going to have access to some of these just because simply there's no profitability to it and they don't want to make it
0: yeah and you mentioned the drug metformin so i think metformin is the other extreme because you know metformin has been used for 60 years or more Mm -hmm. for for the treatment of diabetes so we know its safety record it's an exceedingly safe drug it's highly effective against cancer and it's very cheap in fact i take metformin and the, my copay is zero dollars. Hmm. That, that's how that's how cheap the drug really is. So it has an enormous safety record. It's exceedingly cheap, and it's highly effective for both the prevention and treatment of cancer. Yeah. So that, that's the other side of the coin, and that's those are the kind of drugs that we want to promote.
1: This uh, is use we want to promote. Now you you really I think. The repurposed medication wave really started with, you referenced the metric study in the treatment of glioblastoma. That's the, the use of metformin, atorvastatin, mabendazole, and doxycycline, and, and, and the impact that that had on, um, that it has had in patients with, um, with glioblastomas. But what you highlighted there is that these individual drugs, it's not one, But it's, again, the concept of synergism, the concept of this is not a magic bullet even with repurposed medications, even with nutrition, lifestyle changes. These are a piece in the cog of the wheel of an integrative oncological approach to the treatment of cancer. They're not standalone, but they are very powerful when used together.
0: Yeah, so I think what you say is so, so, so important that these aren't standalone therapies, that when they combine with each other, they are additive or likely synergistic. And so you need at least four, five, or six of these therapies combined together. And, you know, we see this with the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic, and, you know, Dr. Zeefried has shown this in wonderful experiments, that the ketogenic diet is effective. But when you actually then add mabendazole to a ketogenic diet, it obliterates the glioblastoma. So it's a combination. And then once you start adding vitamin D, you start adding melatonin, you start adding berberine, its effects become much more potent. And so this is the concept that we really want to reinforce that there's no one single magic bullet. It's a combination of therapies that act together synergistically to you know control the cancer improve the patient's outcome and hopefully extend their
1: life it's like a boxer if you just have a left jab left jab and that's all you do you're you're going to get knocked out but if you come in there with the ability to bob and ease you know even move and and do a left jab a right jab uppercut you know all those different things that a boxer can do we're bringing all of those those forces and options to bear. And then what we have, and what I always tell patients, Paul, is that in cancer treatment, what we need is options. When we have options available to us, then we have things that we can do to change the tide. When we lose options, that's where we lose the ability to change the tide in cancer.
0: So I think what you say is really important that, you know, Patients don't want to lose hope. When you take away hope, you take away the the, the will to live. And so there is enormous hope. And there are multiple different approaches which we can use to give the patient hope so that there is hope that we can control this disease. So we don't really talk about cure. We talk about controlling the disease, improving the symptoms, improving the quality of life. And so there are multiple interventions that that give patients hope, that it's never a hopeless situation, there's always a good chance of some therapeutic benefit.
1: Well, you're just, you're hitting me to my core. Let me tell you why, because I always tell, I've said this before, and I think it was the first uh, segment of this three-part series, so check that out, part one, part two, um, that there are several principles that guide me. Hope, heal, teach, serve and it's to build a legacy for the patients. I tell them it's a legacy at a micro level, but a legacy on a macro level. Obviously micro is a cellular level, macro is their body, but then generations to come. Because if I introduce a therapy that can impact their future generations, I'm not acceptable to that. Same way if I hurt their body, while I'm trying to heal their body, I don't don't buy that as a potential avenue as well. But hope is where it begins. So we actually just launched a hashtag, (laughs) hoping forward. And I, cause I tell patients when patients come back to us, they go, why, why have I been healed? Whereas everybody else around me, I don't see getting better. In fact, I'm seeing friends of mine die from cancer. And I said, well, you've been selected to actually provide hope in a world that is the world of cancer that is driven by fear. So you've been selected to hope it forward. And so we didn't talk about this. You brought the hope into it. But so we, we actually developed these little stickers. We give them to patients. Cause I tell them, you stick it everywhere. You're going to see it multiple times. And it's going to remind you hope, yeah. hope. Because there's always hope.
0: There is always. always hope. And I think it's really important. It's such an important driving factor for patients to believe there is a chance of improvement. There is hope and that they should, um, do whatever they can because they need to empower themselves. Yeah. It's really important. This is about self-empowerment. And their families obviously also play a key role is because they need the, the social and family support in driving that hope, in driving
1: the interventions that can improve their outcome. I think that's a key point, Paul, because a lot of patients will come to our clinic and the family is kind of divided on Is this the right approach, the integrative oncology approach? Is it not? But what you're doing in this book is you're just laying the evidence down and you're saying, look, it doesn't matter the name of the clinic, the doctor that's providing this care. If they are using metformin this way, this is the evidence that supports its use. And so you can be solid and in agreement as a family because let me tell you what, when a family is divided, it divides the patient, it hurts the patient. Yeah. And so you're providing the evidence here for everybody to go to, to be able to say, okay, uh, is there evidence that um, you know melatonin can help in cancer treatment? Well, let me go check Dr. Paul Merrick's book and let's see what that evidence shows. And then that can begin their rabbit hole journey down that. So on that, let's talk on a few um, of the repurposed drugs, therapeutics that you highlight there, because of course, beyond the nutrition, everybody says, well, what pill can I take? Everybody, we're a culture in a society that is that embodied with taking a pill to fix something. And I think the most obvious that we've talked about it several times is, is, is vitamin D.
0: Yes.
1: And you talked about, you've, uh, I think, written an addendum Uh, to the book that maybe that'll be 3.0, 4.0, 5.0, you'll you'll have a whole volume of cancer care driven by Paul Merrick, but how the sun has such an impact on cancer. And then of course that vitamin D and P53 study, which I I don't even think that's been released yet. So, I mean, talk about vitamin D and the sun as it relates to cancer.
0: Yeah. So. Vitamin D is really important and there's certain epidemiological facts that have been known since the early 2000s. For example, as you go north or south from the equator, that your risk of cancer goes up because you're exposed to less UVB and you make less vitamin D. There's overwhelming data that if you're vitamin D deficient, increases your risk of cancer. I think in the nurses' healthcare study, there was a linear inverse relationship between the risk of colorectal cancer and vitamin D levels. So the the, the, the data on vitamin D is overwhelming. It, it, it's impossible to argue this fact. It's irrefutable evidence that vitamin D plays a major role in preventing cancer and the treatment and there are numerous mechanistic pathways by which it's been shown to be effective. You know, most recently there was the paper looking at P53 and uh, vitamin D. I should add that many of the studies, as we've spoken before, were designed to fail. They were designed to fail because they used the wrong dose. And so a dose of 2,000 units of vitamin D a day is ridiculously small. So we would recommend for prophylaxis a dose of at least 5,000 a day, if not higher. And patients who have cancer at least a dose of ten thousand a day. And so the dose is absolutely critical. The dose is so important.
1: But even on that, that study that you mentioned, they still saw a benefit at two thousand units.
0: Absolutely. So <laughs> but I'm my my instinct is that so they only they saw a benefit in the subgroup of patients Correct. that had the P fifty three antibody. I would suspect if they used the appropriate dose they would have seen the same effect in all the patients, not just the P53 subgroup. So it's such a powerful hormone, it's so safe. So there's no reason, there's absolutely no reason that every single patient who has a cancer should be treated with vitamin D. Let
1: me me add this, and I've seen this before and I've not seen it described in the literature, Paul, but the way I attribute vitamin D to cancer and the inflammation associated with cancer, it's, it's like that salmon swimming upstream. When I see patients that come in and their inflammatory markers are through the roof, I can dose them with vitamin D and it doesn't budge. So you have to pass that threshold where the more inflammation you're dealing with, you have to elevate that dose. And then what happens is that vitamin D just, it starts to break through and it starts to climb. I've actually seen patients with, where the cancer's winning the day. And I can give 50,000 IUs of vitamin D in an oral route day after day after day, and their levels drop. And it's because of just the, it's the metabolic just collapse of their body that is happening. So for me, I almost see vitamin D as a potential prognosticating factor in a way, because if I just give somebody 10,000 units of vitamin D and their level, it's, it's uniformly that they come in under 30. I don't have actual specific statistics, but I would say well over 50% of our stage four cancers, they're under 20. And the literature supports that.
0: Yeah, so what you say is absolutely true. Almost all, over 90% of patients who diagnose with cancer have a vitamin D level below 20. And so you bring up the point of monitoring vitamin D level. I think it's absolutely critical that you really, if you have cancer, you want a vitamin D level close to 100. It's really important no matter what the dose is. So monitoring the vitamin D is really important and achieving a level of close to 100 is exceedingly safe. But you have to, you have to titrate the dose according to the level. And as you write, patients who have profound inflammation will have low vitamin D levels. It's like vitamin C. Yeah. If, you, if you have high oxidative stress, you're gonna have low vitamin C levels. So if you're hyperinflamed, you're gonna have low vitamin D levels. So you really need to check the vitamin D level. And this is a simple test.
1: And it keeps coming back to these daggum vitamins. Vitamin C, vitamin D. (laughs) So you're gonna you're gonna be pivoting from vitamin vitamin C and sepsis to vitamin D and cancer. You're gonna be following through vitamins and just changing changing the tide through the research as it relates to natural therapeutics. So but you know, we we've talked about vitamin D. Um, I think this one people might find interesting, as a repurposed medication, we talked about metformin, we've touched a little bit on mibindazole. What about the little blue pill?
0: Yeah. (laughs) So it does seem outrageous that the little blue pill, which we're talking about Viagra, so these are phosphodiesterase inhibitors. So there is really good data I mean, so this is very good data, mechanistic data, yeah. and outcome data that the little blue pill, and it's really the class of phosphodiesterase inhibitors that are very effective. So people think that, that phosphodiesterase inhibitors are used only for you know erectile dysfunction, but in fact, they have other purposes. It's, yeah. it's standard of care for patients with pulmonary hypertension. Yeah. So there are other indications, and there is really good data in patients with cancer that it has um, a very effective anti-cancer effects. It's been most noted in patients with prostate cancer, in which there's a dramatic uh, improvement in outcome, but again, in many other cancers as well.
1: So it's really helped Be a little crew that's really helping them to get it up in several different ways, right? <laughs> in the bedroom and in the anti-cancer way. So it's, a, I could see a new marketing campaign coming out of that one. So, um, when you when you look beyond uh, the medication, there. The other one,
0: you know, while you're talking about it, which is interesting, is statins. Oh. So this the statin hoax is really important because most people statins actually atorvastatin is the most commonly prescribed drug in okay. this country. It's number one, and right? It's prescribed for cardiac disease or atherosclerosis for which it doesn't work. So the most commonly prescribed drug is for hypercholesterolemia and it has been shown universally that it actually has no benefit on cardiac disease. But paradoxically, atorvastatin and the lipid soluble statins are very effective for the treatment of cancer. So there you go.
1: (laughs) So here is a critical care expert now, really debunking the number one indication for a drug, but repurposing it for the number one, I would say disease of high income countries. So because you have a lot of different drugs, a lot, a lot of different therapeutics whittled in here, and you, you even talk about procedures. But if you had to focus on, say, give me your top top five repurposed drugs, what would you say?
0: Yeah, so that's a really important question because obviously, you know, the redo group has looked at, you know, repurposed drugs for for oncology. They list over close to 300 different drugs Mm -hmm. and and, uh, nutraceuticals, and and obviously that's overwhelming. So I think if I went down the list, vitamin D is number one. Mm. I think melatonin is probably number two, Um, green tea, Green tea extract would be maybe number three. Uh, metformin would be number four. Um, berberine maybe would be number five. So th- those are, are, the, are the top list. But you know, there depending on patient's lifestyle and preferences, you know, there there are other options.
1: You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned berberine because, <clears throat> and we'll start wrapping this up because berberine is something that when we were at the FLCCC, you were diving into the science of berberine. But berberine's impact, everybody focuses on berberine in the glucose management aspect of it. But berberine has quite, just as you correctly discover and and, and announce here in this book, they ripple. But berberine has an impact on the gut and the microbiome. And, And so can you elaborate a little bit on how that impacts the cancer fight.
0: Yeah, so surprisingly mm-hmm. that manipulating the microbiome has an effect on cancer. And so th- there's really good data that you can reduce the risk of cancer recurrence by manipulating the microbiome. So the microbiome basically produces all kinds of chemical compounds which are released to the bloodstream and has, have a systemic effect and so that it becomes important. This is why it's it's a holistic approach to treatment of, of the patient. It's you know the exercise, it's the stress reduction, it's the sleep, it's manipulating the microbiome with, with things such as fermented foods and probiotics that can, you know, manipulate the microbiome. So these all interact. And surprisingly, um, berberine acts by modulating the, 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 the microbiome. And in fact, part of its main m- mode of action may be through manipulation of the microbiome.
1: But then that manipulation of the microbiome has a systemic immune impact. And there's research showing that you know the gut microbiome, the population impacts chemotherapy, impacts radiation. So, I mean, this, this has impact far beyond just an herbal supplement and the gut microbiome. I think the future of what we're gonna see in immunotherapy, if we wanna classify and, and, and put something into a category, I think we're gonna be seeing that the gut microbiome as a targeted immunotherapy immunotherapeutic approach to cancer. I'm, I'm convinced of it.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I think that, you know, as we said, just giving, Chemotherapy makes no sense. It should be a more holistic approach. And part of that is diet, and part of the diet is manipulating the microbiome.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I actually have a good friend down in, in Mexico that we were talking about you know, doing some actual work around that concept, because there is an FDA-approved fecal transplant for ulcerative colitis. It, it's approved. Uh, now, most insurances don't cover it, but it would be really interesting to start taking that concept to a systemic approach for the treatment of cancer so using a fecal transplant and yes that is exactly what it sounds to be <laughs> it is a transplant from a donor of, a, of feces but it's it's because of the microbiome but I, let's touch on this one last thing because i really get would love to get your intake on it because from a sepsis world your your original training is so so a lot of its infectious disease that is driving a lot of that, uh, not all of it, but a lot. There's beginning to be some things pop up in the literature talking about, everybody talks about the tumor microenvironment, but they're talking about the tumor microbiome. So th- there's this area of medicine called multiomics: genomics, epigenomics, transcriptomics. I go on through and I say immuno, immunomodulomics and whatever-omics, but there's actually a field of that study called microbiomics. And so this ties into that tumor microbiome because there's literature that's actually describing that within cancer in that tumor microenvironment, it has its own microbiome. And that in and of itself may be a part of the treatment resistance that can occur. So maybe with what we're doing through repurposed medications, maybe through what we're doing through the effects of the microbiome, maybe that's going to be impacting a microbiome we may not even know about. So,
0: yeah, well, I agree. I think the tumor microenvironment is such a fascinating concept that you can't just look at the cancer cells in isolation. They, they live in this community which feeds them. Yeah. And you know, it's the, the, all these cells, the myelodepressor cells, the T regulatory cells, as well as the microbiome. So they live in an environment which feeds them. And so one of the ways which you can control the cancer is to change the microenvironment in which they live, which is a truly fascinating concept.
1: Well, that's the future. So, you know, wrapping up this, this third segment, you know, what we've done, and I think what we've seen from your career, which I can't wait to see what that next aspect of your career brings, it's the same sticking to the data, the science, but innovating above that from vitamin C to sepsis, to COVID and what you've done there in the innovation with the group, but you've provided the same principles founded in data, collaborate with physicians, innovate. And now you're bringing that to the world of integrative oncology, repurposed medication. So I can't wait, Dr. Paul Merrick to see what innovations, you bring to integrative oncology because of this book, and I agree with you, I think this book is gonna need to be revised, revised, and revised, because I think you're going to continue to be that tip of the spear that's going to take that shotgun approach of integrative oncology, some of which is evidence-based and some of which is not, and really hone the target of that to a very pinpoint position of what the evidence shows And I think you're going to, just as you've done with each step, I think you're gonna advance the world of integrative oncology. So I wanna thank you personally. Um, It's been my pleasure to get to know you over the last couple of years. And I've truly been, you know, I'm truly admirer of your career and what you've said over and over and over again, the morality, the ethics of what you do. It says a lot, not about what you are as a physician, but it says a lot about the heart of who you are as a person. And I think that reflects the physician that you are. And that's why I'm so admired of you because you reflect, I think, both of those very well. So I can't wait to see what this brings for you. So if you're watching, this is a book that you must have, Cancer Care on Amazon. If you're listening, just go to Amazon and look for Cancer Care Dr. Paul Merrick and uh, it's also the subtitle is The Role of Repurposed Drugs and Metabolic Interventions in Treating Cancer. Uh, Dr. Paul Merrick, where can they find you? What website?
0: So they can find me on www.flccc.net, flccc.net, and uh, we actually have the book available as a free PDF download. So if you can't access it through Amazon, you can download the PDF from our website. And on our website, we have protocols and lots of educational material.
1: And I think you've got a a, kit, a Kindle coming soon, maybe? And We have
0: a Kindle version, hopefully within the next few weeks.
1: Yeah. So I definitely encourage you to check out all of those aspects because there's going to be a wealth of knowledge for you. So as I mentioned here, there was a part one, part two, as this is part three. So I encourage you to check out Uh, those individual segments on the podcast, Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. Of course, thank you for watching, and I encourage you to sign up for for updates of this and upcoming exciting content, because what we wanna do is we want to expand the arena and the world of integrative oncology through the science, but highlight how people are innovating in this world based on this science, just like what Dr. Paul Merrick has done throughout now kind of three aspects of his career with this third one upcoming. Also check me out at drgoodyear.com as well as dr.goodyear at Instagram and wherever I'm on social media, check me out there. And of course, I'm medical director at brio-medical.com. So Dr. Paul Barrett, pleasure. Thank for you, Nathan. You a high five.
0: It's been it okay. It's been a pleasure and an honor, thank you.
1: That's right, well, and I, I don't say this lightly, it's truly an honor and pleasure to get to know you because I believe that uh, you are a pioneer. Thank you. It's, you bet. It's really kind to of you. Thank it's, you. It's heartfelt and it is true. Thank you. You bet. For more information just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness. Whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease, our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our featured podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.